0: So, you know, there are, there are industry standards, there are corporations that have set industry standards. And so, you know, we want to applaud them while simultaneously putting the pressure on these other corporations that, you know, act like they can't do anything, but we know that they can do a lot.
1: It's an incredible honor to serve our community in such a unique way, as we listen and research, as we visit with people representing every type of background you can imagine. As we take in stories, stories of triumph or despair, as we all ride these incredible times together, we recognize that at the end of the day, those committed to doing good want to be able to have honest and balanced conversations that offer real solutions for all. Here's where we come together to do just that. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. I'm your host, Runya Mankarius. This episode was brought to you by Brigitte and Bashar Kalai. We thank them for their generous support and their alignment with our mission. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. Today we are thrilled to have Lina Neelon, Director of Corporate and Strategic Initiatives for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. To learn more about Lina, go to endsexualexploitation.org or follow uh, Nekosi at Twitter at N-C-O-S-E or on Instagram at and exploitation. Lena, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Rania, and for shining a light on these issues.
1: We really wanted to talk to you because um, sexual exploitation, human trafficking, has in the last, I would say, five, six years become like a national hot topic. Everybody's talking about it and people want to get involved. But with that, there's a lot of misinformation. So what I love about what you're doing is you're tackling some of these big bucket items that people really, really care about, um, but don't fully understand. So I'm so excited to talk to you about like corporate involvement in sexual exploitation. We're going to look at laws. We're going to look at the buyers. We're going to look at legislation that you're working on and share a little bit about your story. So um, let's dive in. So you spearhead Nicosi's campaign to hold corporations accountable for profiting from sexual exploitation. Okay. I can't even imagine what this actually means, but can you paint like the larger landscape for us? What what does this really mean?
0: So I think we can all agree that no entity should be profiting off of sexual exploitation and abuse. Um, And certainly not mainstream corporations and entities, but yet that is happening and it's corporations that you and I and your listeners use. It's Google, it's Amazon, it's Netflix, it's Visa, it's Instagram, it's Snapchat. And in some instances, these corporations are explicitly putting out material that is sexually explicit, pornographic, and are profiting from it. But what's often happening is that platforms and products are being misused. And these corporations are largely turning a blind eye when predators, pedophiles, and pimps are using their products in order to exploit vulnerable adults and children. So the National Center on Sexual Exploitation um, is holding them accountable and not letting them uh, get away with it. And we do that in several ways. We advocate directly with the corporations. We spearhead grassroots campaigns uh, primarily through our dirty dozen list where we name and shame these corporations and then give uh, the general public, very specific actions they can do to hold these corporations accountable. And when necessary, we take legal action. So we are sending a message to corporations that we are watching, the general public is watching, and we, we hope that they will, and have, um, take measures to stop the exploitation happening on their platforms and ideally make fighting exploitation part of their
1: business. I mean, the dirty dozen list, I know we'll link to that in the show notes, but you mentioned Google, Amazon, Netflix. I mean, that it, even was, it wasn't even what I was thinking. I was thinking of, you know, Backdoor and all of these other platforms. Um, can you explain how the networks really do this? So I understand, or what, or what my understanding has been is, you know, these platforms might use social media to actually sell an individual. Netflix, I don't under, I'm don't i not making the connection. You're, is that about just streaming pornographic content in which the person participating is a human trafficking victim? And then maybe Amazon is selling material. Walk us through the different platforms.
0: Right. So, you know, different, different sectors seem to have different trends. So one of the biggest, of course, is social media. That's where we're seeing it's the, it's the new track. This is where mm-hmm. um, exploitation, abuse, and sex trafficking are happening. So for example, with Twitter and Instagram, we are seeing that pimps and traffickers are actually advertising the women and girls and and boys that they're selling and making those connections. So it's very explicit. It's right there. They're sharing sexual abuse material. um, In cases like the social media sites, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Um, there aren't enough safeguards in place. So predators can directly reach children. um, They can direct message them, send explicit photographs, pornography, entice them to do the same. So they're setting up these children, um, they're grooming them for sexual abuse. In the case of hotels, um, we know that hotels, you know, it's part of the infrastructure of the commercial sex industry. So hotels, credit cards are all enabling the commercial sex industry to act. So we have called on Visa and other credit cards to stop, um, to stop processing payments for Pornhub, which we know is also, um, you know, perpetuating rape and sex trafficking. And I
1: didn't, and that's what I was thinking. Originally, I was thinking you were only going to talk about Pornhub. And I didn't expect Amazon and Netflix and, and all of these names to come out of your mouth. But you, the reality is, you're right. It's it's happening everywhere. So sorry, go ahead. And I, and I also will add that I loved reading Nicosia or, um, on your site, you guys talk about the banking industry, the credit card industry, the hotel industry, the third party, you, you know, like the ride sharing industry. You guys are really looking at the whole landscape.
0: Exactly. And I think, again, it's the infrastructure, what is propping up. And these are the mainstream entities, right? And again, I think that um, one of the things I love about what Nicosi does is because we are all using them, we are consumers. And so that we we can hold these corporations accountable and say, you know, I use Visa. I, you know, I'm on Netflix. You need to stop what you're doing. This is not what I want to be seeing and viewing. Um, You should be held accountable for what you are perpetuating. So, and again, with even with hotels, you know, there have been instances where there were clear signs that someone was being trafficked in the hotel, you know, men coming in and out of the room, um, you know, condoms left, you know, and so, Again, when these corporations are turning a blind eye or are saying, you know, I'm not liable because you know, these third parties are doing it, we just, it, it's not okay. Um, and there are some, print, a lot of principled uh, corporations too. For example, PayPal last fall did cut ties with Pornhub and said they would no longer process payments. Um, the, you know, Marriott stopped uh, streaming pornography in their rooms in Hilton. So, you know, there are, there are industry standards. There are corporations that have set industry standards. And so, you know, we want to applaud them while simultaneously putting the pressure on these other corporations that, you know, act like they can't do anything. But we know that they can do a lot. So, you know, to your point too, even before I did this work, I don't think, I, I, I didn't truly understand the extent that this was happening. I mean, I, I really truly did not know that porn was and child sex abuse material was readily available with one click on Twitter, but, but it is the reality. And so I really want your listeners um, to understand, and especially with the social media, especially you know, any parents listening, that this is where predators are, are working right now. Um, so again, there needs to be pressure legal, legal uh, work, legal pressure and action, um, laws, and then obviously the awareness and pressure from the community.
1: I love how you said social media is the new track. I mean, that's a really unbelievable statement. Um, You know, the liability factor amongst corporations is what I find so fascinating because we've seen this last year, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok will remove content that they deem to go against sort of the national narrative for COVID or the national narrative for hate speech. But yet they draw a line when it comes to the exploitation of kids or the hypersexualization of young girls. Well, for all of a sudden, that's third party. We don't, we don't touch that content. I think the community, to your point, needs to be pushing the fact that we don't want to see it. The problem is the community consumes it. So, I mean, you read some of the numbers on Pornhub, and I don't have the latest numbers and how much- 120 120 million a day. 120 million views a day? Viewers a day.
0: It is staggering. I mean, I really want listeners to let that sink in, Um, in terms of the culture and the that pornography is so, you know, it's all a continuum. It's all interconnected. And I think one of the biggest myths is that, you know, it's like victimless crime, you know, I'm watching porn. What does that hurt? But the harms are so, you know, many We We know that those in the porn industry, the so-called performers in the porn industry um are being very affected, often coming from similar situations that those who find themselves in prostitution or being trafficked um, find themselves. We know that you know Pornhub is under a lot of scrutiny right now, and I encourage your view- viewers to go to traffickinghub.com, um, that we know that uh, people are uploading recorded rapes, child sex abuse. Um, it is rife With racism. I mean, talking about like getting a free pass, the there is there's pornography about slavery, there's Black Lives Matter porn, there's porn about George Floyd. I mean, it is it's sickening and that it is so pervasive. And so many people are watching it and younger and younger audiences. I mean, we hear of Kids, nine, you know, six, six, seven, eight, nine who are seeing hardcore porn, they're probably not even, you know, they're likely not even looking for it. Um, or they're on these social media uh, platforms and it's, it's flooding them. So it's shaping the culture. It's shaping young minds that this is okay. And pornography is the training ground for prostitution. So if you're a young boy seeing hardcore pornography and you're learning that, you know, that violence is something that, that women like, that degrading people based on their race is something that um, is intertwined with sexuality. But then it's no wonder that these broader these corporations and um, the broader you know, a broader culture um, is pornified. <laughs> and that you know buying sex then does seem like a victimless crime because you're only watching porn, right? you're not buying a human being, but in fact, You are, and you're putting money into the pockets of the pornographers and the pimps um, when you're participating in this type of exploitation.
1: And then I'll even paint a different scenario. I was um, meeting with somebody, actually, one of uh, just a woman that I adore. Uh, She lives in New York, and we were talking about the staggering number of young college boys that suffer from erectile dysfunction. And I said, What are you talking about? She said, Well, think about it. They've been consuming pornography from the age of nine, 10 years old, and it's become hardcore pornography by the time they're 18 years old and in college, that the normal relationship setting does nothing for them. And so they they actually have erectile dysfunction. They're taking medicine um, to actually just normally be with, with their partner. I mean, for those of us with daughters, like that's just not at all the culture we want our girls to be raised in or to interface with when they start, you know, meeting people later in life. So this is very pervasive and it's having actual consequences. This not too long ago, Amazon, there was, you know, social media discussion about Amazon and the sale of sex dolls. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. Is this real and yes, it's real, and it's like I—it's very uncomfortable to Google sex dolls on Amazon. But it has—it's real, and you know they're for sale anywhere from six hundred to two thousand dollars. But what I was interested in was the—the the one that it's there, but two, like the imagery, and you have dolls that look young.
0: Oh, there's—I mean, there's child sex dolls that are being sold. Um, at Wish is one of the corporations that's on our Dirty Dozen list for 2020 for selling child sex dolls. Um, there's actually, we just received, uh, there's interest in some legislators too, to, uh, to make it illegal to ship child sex dolls into the U S in Australia, that's already illegal. Um, and so, yeah, there it's, it, it's, it's pervasive. It's everywhere.
1: Can you talk to us about the, the pimp, the buyer and the, The person that's trafficked. And let's I actually want to start with the person that's trafficked because I hear people say, Well, there are just sex workers. You're ruined you're literally trying to ruin their business and this is what they choose to do. Or you hear that young girl, I mean, she's always been, you know, she's always hung out with the wrong crowd. She just that's just, you know, it's terrible, but it's her choice, and we've got to just let her have her choice. What's your response to to those two scenarios or to describe the the trafficking victim in general?
0: Right. So I think what's really important for um, the general public to understand is that most people in prostitution are not there by choice. They are there from a lack of choice. The vast majority of those in the sex industry are coming from sexual abuse at home, um, from being shuttled from family to family in the foster care system, trying to escape domestic violence. These are not people who have, you know, happy, healthy lives and are choosing to freely sell their bodies to strangers 10 to 15 times a night. Um, now, there are, there are those who call themselves sex workers who, who say that they are freely choosing it. They are the vast, vast minority. Um, and they're often, when we do a little digging, are backed up by the, by the sex industry, by pornographers, um, by funders. Um, because again, they, they have a lot to lose, right? So they're propped up. They're often white, young, educated, in other words, privileged. When we know that those in the United States, those in prostitution are again, in disproportionate numbers, women and girls of color, um, LGBTQ youth. And we know from survivors that we work with that when you are being bought, and sold, you have to tell yourself that you're doing this because you want to out of survival. So I have a lot of empathy for those um, who, who ha- don't have choices because we as a society have failed them to provide them with choices and that they feel that that is the only choice. And I, again, just feel like, you know, as a society, how are we okay that, that some are being relegated uh, to sell their bodies? Um, where is the, why aren't we recognizing their human dignity? So again, it's, I think that the sex workers are are loud. Um, it's often, if you dig a little further, uh, you can see that again, they're, they're not necessarily, uh, speaking from their own accord or there's, you know, others behind them. And that really vast majority, I mean, like, always around 89, 92%. If you ask prostituted people, if you could leave, would you? And actually I'll, I'll share, I interviewed sex buyers for a study we were doing. And one sex buyer said, you know, I guess if you jump out of a burning building, you can say someone chose to do that, but is it a choice at all? And to me that just says it all.
1: Talk about the buyer.
0: So again, victims largely, uh, the majority, women and girls of color, LGBTQ youth coming from poverty and abuse. Study after study shows us that sex buyers in the United States are, are men, are white, are educated, and have partners. Um, they make an average of $100,000 or more. Um, if online buyers, and again, most of the purchasing sex is moving online are up to 85% white. Um, These are not men in trench coats or creepy guys in basements. These are men you and I know, and 20% of US men have admitted to purchasing sex. 20%. So statistically speaking, I probably know several buyers, you probably know several buyers everybody probably knows buyers um, and certainly potential future buyers. So, you know, when you look, this is a racial justice issue too. When you're looking at the fact that it's largely white men purchasing women and girls of color, those who are on the margins of society, um, I I, want to emphasize that that to me, this is a racial justice issue. And by and large, these men are getting away with it. Um, They are not being held accountable. They're not being arrested. Um, because in part because they are seen as upstanding citizens because by all accounts they they seem to be um so you know and they're and they're buying i say that sex buying has little to do with sex and everything to do with power and this is the powerful and the privileged taking advantage of the vulnerable
1: and we're going to talk about the laws in a second around the buyers because I actually hundred percent believe what you just said there's there's been little to no punishment, um, when it comes to the buyers. Um, and when you paint the scenario of the girl that's being sold 10 to 15 times a day, let's just obviously remind people that she's not pocketing cash right. there, you know, it's all going to her pimp. So talk to us about the pimp. Who are these okay. pimps?
0: So again, it, it, it varies. Um, but uh, I, I I'm glad you say pimps because again, to for for most people, I think there's the image, of you know from Taken or like the the Russian mob and the Colombian drug cartels, which absolutely are, you know, large systems of, of international sex trafficking. But in the U.S., you know, pimps op, often fall. Um, th- th- Pimps are traffickers. If you look at the federal de- definition of trafficking, uh, severe forms of trafficking, it's force, fraud, and coercion, and that's how pimps operate. They, um, in the U.S., it's a lot. The pimps will befriend vulnerable adults and children. They, it's called like the you know the boyfriend pimp. They first have them fall in love, you know, treat them really well. It's the first time that you know, maybe this girl is receiving positive attention or especially from a male, you know, and then six months in it's, oh baby, you need to, uh, you know, have sex with these guys so that we could have more money. It's, it's much more, there's a lot of mental coercion and psychological control. It's not, again, kids chained in basements. And we we do know that there's uh, about 5% of those cases are what, People think of when they think of trafficking, of like the chains and the cages. Most of it as this, these relational, um, this relational exploitation it could be familial. That is very often to again, you know, uh, parents, grandparents, uncles selling children or or selling their their wife, their partner to bring in money. Um, so. It, so the picture is, is is more complex and I think different than what most people uh, most people envision when we're talking about sex trafficking.
1: We do a lot of work in trafficking here in Houston. And I'll never forget, we were with a deputy um, with our Harris County Sheriff's Office who's working undercover um, with one of the local universities. And she was sharing a story about A freshman student, you know, just walking through campus and one of the pimps that she's watching, who was a student at the school, was posting on one of his multiple Instagram pages. He took a picture of this young girl and he said, you know, she just had her glasses, her hair was down to her shoulders. She's a little blonde girl. She had all of her books in her hand. And his post said, I'll get that B-I-T-C-H by the end of the school year. And it just painted, you know... What I what I want to do with that story is just rem- is kind of break down the like, it's a them, not us. It's us, not them. It's everybody. It's everywhere. And anybody can be targeted. Would you agree with that? Or is that exaggerated a bit?
0: I'll also share a story that I heard when I first started in this movement. It was from um, a friend who, in the FBI. And he was interviewing traffickers, pimps, saying, you know, how do you get these girls? He said, it's easy. I go to this mall in Wellesley, which is one of the most affluent communities um, in the U.S. It's in, outside of Boston. I go to the mall, and I look for a girl who's on her own. And I walk up to her, and I say, you have beautiful eyes. And if she says, thanks, I move on. And if she says, no, no, I don't, I know I've got her. So it's similar to your story, too, of this, um, you know, women and girls are – Still, second-class citizens in the U.S., so that in a sense, they are vulnerable. I mean, what teenager isn't vulnerable? And I think, again, with the, the social media and how pervasive it is, and even now with the pandemic, right, like everyone's online. It's, kids live in a virtual world um, where their self-esteem is com- continuously chipped away, um, where the predators have incredibly easy access. There, I'll, I'll share some links maybe um, that... Folks can go to um, about a, when a, a technology company that's focusing on protecting kids online. Just a nine minute documentary of a mom who posted as a child on Instagram, and within seconds, predators had filled her her direct messaging. So, so yes, I think all children are vulnerable. But then I want to make the point that again, the in our society women and girls of color are the most vulnerable and they're the most vulnerable again, online and on the street. So I make that point because we often see when there is uh, an outcry about human trafficking, it's girls that look like me. It's little, you know, little blonde girls with blue eyes and Oh, how horrible is it? But when it's girls of color, we have less empathy and we hear from survivors. We know from the porn industry that, and, And from our culture, starting from slavery, that women and girls of color are seen as uh, more adult, sexualized, and so we have less empathy for them.
1: Which is unbelievable. I, I mean, it's just, and it makes me thankful for the fact that this, I mean, the community has rallied together to fight trafficking, but we're still trying to understand all the players and what's happening. And so one of the things we've been really surprised to see here in Houston, um, you know, we have a track here where you'll see prostitutes walk up and down the track and everyone will call and say, I don't understand. Why Why aren't they removed and the buyer's arrested? I don't understand. And then we'll talk to our local police department, which we think, you know, is the best in the country, and they'll say, we do make the arrests. But they're they're out the next day. They're out, and not the arrest of the prostitutes, the arrests of the buyers or the, the pimps, and they're out the next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the laws are surely lagging. There's been a lot of work here done in the state of Texas. Governor Abbott's made this a priority. Mm-hmm. He, you know, has done a tremendous amount of work to try to remove deferred adjudication when you have a pimp sit, standing before a judge um, compelling prostitution. They've they've tried to work with these issues, but. Generally speaking, we're still seeing that we're not where we need to be. Is that what you're finding?
0: A hundred percent. Part of the problem, I think, is people, as we discussed earlier, think that oh, that's just prostitution. They're not seeing the links with the broader sex industry. And I want to make the point too. You know, when when sex buyers are buying, they're not they're not saying, oh, are you a sex trafficking victim, or oh, I want a sex trafficking victim they're just, they're purchasing, you know, they're, I want this X, Y, and Z, right? But they're driving the entire commercial sex industry, which includes sex trafficking. In the U.S., it's illegal to buy sex. It's illegal to sell sex. But by and large, the way that those laws have been enforced has been disproportionately targeting the victims, right? Those who are selling, the prostituted people, um, and letting the sex buyers go free. Um, And it's, you know, we've seen ranges but often it's like about ten to one of those being arrested to those selling to those those buying. Um we are seeing a switch in law enforcement.
1: Wait, it's ten to one like the prostitutes arrested ten times more than more the than other? the sex
0: buyers. Okay. Right. And when you if you think about it, if anything it should be flipped because right. if of someone course. is you know a woman is being bought ten to fifteen times a night, we should be getting 10 to 15 buyers, right? Yes. Um so so by and large, you're, you know, un- not enforced equally, we are seeing a switch. And it's been very, um, it's been incredible to see law enforcement uh, growing understanding about that if you go after the sex buyers, it is the most effective way to dry up the sex industry and stop sex trafficking. If there's no buyer, there's no business. If no one's demanding sex, pimps and traffickers aren't going to be supplying victims, right? So I think there's this greater understanding that yes, going after sex buyers is the most effective way, um, but more needs to be done. I mean, we there are penalty penalties for buying a human being in some places is equates to a parking ticket. We're we're talking about buying a human being is the same as parking in the you know. A red zone. Like, it, it's ridiculous. And I think part of it is that people, people need to make that connection and understand what's happening. Again, this is not a victimless crime. Um, we need to hold these men accountable to dry up this entire you know, destructive industry. And we need to provide exit services for the victims, which again, are the vast majority. And um, I traveled to Sweden and Norway where they have a really interesting approach Back in 1999, Sweden um, dec- decided that prostitution was again it was gender-based violence, um, and they made that same conclusion that if if people are choosing to sell their body, that as a society, you know, Sweden had failed them. So what they did, and they were the laugh. These, there was a group of parliamentarians. They were the laughing stock of the country, laughing stock of Europe. You know, sexually liberated Sweden. Um, they made they left selling sex legal, and they made buying sex illegal. And what happened was that, and this was an unintended consequence, that in a few years, about five years, that the international sex trafficking almost was gone. Like, we, there were um, detectives who would say, you know, we, we have tapped into traffickers, lines and they're saying, don't go to Sweden. It's high risk, low reward. And they were estimating like 200 to 400 women being brought into Sweden, whereas in neighboring Finland, it was 15 to 17,000. So it just decimated the market. Um, Sweden simultaneously created, you know, had a welfare system to help those in prostitution get job training and services that they needed. But what I found really fascinating too, is that this, you know, laws help shape culture and signal, you know, Signal to society, you know, what, what isn't, isn't right. And in about 10 years that the, the culture changed, that Swedish men are consistently the least likely to purchase sex. They, now everybody applauds this law in Sweden. When I was in Sweden, I would sit in the, you know, in the parks and um, in the squares and I would chat up Swedish men, especially young men, because I was curious, like, do they even know this law exists? Um, and they did, and they were very they were very proud of it. So um, I just I would love to see the u s. shifting towards some people call it the abolitionist model, the quality model, the Swedish model, but targeting those who always have a choice, holding them accountable and providing the exit services to those who are most vulnerable.
1: Lena, you were the leading architect of the cities empowered against sexual exploitation a collaboration between 12 major U.S. cities, measurably decreasing the demand in their communities and a founder, co-chair of the World Without Exploitation Coalition. You're working really hard. You've been for a long time to transform cultural norms. And I think that's the basis of what you're saying behind legislation. So what legislation is out there now that we should be watching, we should be pushing for as community members who want to help? How can we help constructively?
0: Thank you for asking that question. So right now, the most significant legislation at the federal level is called the EARN IT Act, and this holds corporations accountable for the child sex abuse material that is on their platform. So we were speaking earlier how they have been turning a blind eye. They say that they can't really do anything. This legislation would change that and allow survivors that have been exploited through these platforms um, to bring federal civil suits or um, state criminal and civil suit against these corporations. So it's bef- it passed the Senate judiciary unanimously, which almost never happens, it's a bipartisan bill, um, and will be on the floor of the Senate, we hope soon, and really, um, are optimistic that it will pass into law in 2020. So I really encourage listeners to speak to their senators, tell them, you know, ask them to support the EARNET Act. Um, if they haven't, you know, you know, if they're not sponsoring, ask them to the sponsor. If they're already sponsors, ask them you know, who else um, to reach out to. But right now, that is the, the most significant bill that is, is before Congress that could have a major impact given how much exploitation is happening on these platforms um, and not letting them just uh, let it let it continue to flourish.
1: And I think the greatest way to get these platforms to change is linking this to some financial liability or of some sort to hold them responsible somehow because they can control the content. We've seen it through COVID, we've seen it this whole year, they remove stuff they deem hateful They can remove stuff that they deem to be abusive, especially towards children. Um, And I'll say locally, in your local areas, I mean, look at the laws in your your state. You know, people are surprised here when they came to learn that a a pimp could be arrested, a buyer could be arrested and could actually just be released by the judge. The DA could choose not to press charges. People didn't even understand that that was possible. And it is. So look into your local laws, where you are, regardless of what state you are you are in. Lena, you are a mom and you yourself are a survivor and you talk about this in your bio. Um do you share your story and will you share a little bit of your story with us?
0: So I I share that I'm a survivor. I usually don't share my story that I I share more personally um and for a long time I I didn't disclose I was a survivor publicly and I just felt like it it wasn't the right time um, I was having young, you know, starting a family. um, And I I would disclose it more and and even share the story if it was, if I felt like it would help somebody else um, not feel as alone. So it was really more individual. I decided to publicly share that I was a survivor when Me Too came out. And I just felt like I needed to add my voice and point out how pervasive sexual violence against women is. So in every survivor, it needs needs to make that decision. I really, you know, was examining my conscience about why am I disclosing or why am I not disclosing? Um, And again, I just wanted to, I felt it was the right time and really wanted to point to this much larger issue that I still feel is so um, misunderstood, ignored, in the darkness, and I thought, you know, now is the time for me to speak out, and and I have the support systems, and the privilege, and the power, of being a white woman in America, to to be able to speak in a way that maybe others don't feel comfortable speaking. Um, and I also felt too that I I so believe in survivors driving policy. I think we do often get stuck on wanting to know. You know, the details and what happened. And certainly there is so much power in that. And I'm, I'm so grateful to survivors who who share their story in order to illustrate what's happening. But I think that we need to get better in listening to survivors in terms of policy. They know what needs to happen. Um, and I'm talking, you know, survivors of rape, survivors of prostitution, um, survivors of child sexual abuse, they know what needs to happen. And so at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation and throughout my um, you know career fighting exploitation, um, you know we really try to put survivor you know be led by survivors and 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 support the policies um that they are putting out, you know the legislative initiatives you know working with law enforcement um and with corporations you know they their voice is so powerful, and so again, I felt like if I can publicly state. That I'm a survivor of rape, I can also help shift the conversation um, and elevate other survivors.
1: And look at all that you're doing. It's unbelievable. And we commend you and support you and thank you. And we always say, this is not a political issue. This is a bipartisan, nonpartisan. We have to come together because every day or minute that we ignore this, another child, another woman, another young man, um, another person is raped, molested, abused, trafficked, and it's got to stop. I'll, I'll just point out this. Um, it was one of the numbers I, I meant to share with you earlier. Online solicitation of minors is up by 93% in 2020. 93% in 2020. That's where all of our kids are online. And the online solicitation of minors is up by, 20, by 93%. The work you're doing every day is to ensure that that's no longer possible. And I don't know a person in this world with a beating heart that wouldn't want to support you and what you're doing. So we just thank you so much for this conversation and for being on The Balanced Voice. Um, We will be following you and your work at Nicosi. We'll be following all of you. And you'll be sharing some sites with us and and links that we can go to for more information.
0: Absolutely. Everybody has a role to play. We all have connections, we have our consumer voice, and we have our convictions. And I really want to impress upon the audience, you know, sometimes these issues seem so daunting. And, you know, it's like, what can I do? Truly, truly, people listen, corporations listen, legislators listen. um, Please do... Do something, do something. And through the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, we make it very easy for people to take an action, you know, email a legislator, you know, write a letter to a corporate CEO. Um, so I encourage people, you know, one way is you can sign up for the newsletter and see what co- concrete actions you can take and talk to the people in your life about this. You know a buyer or a potential buyer, um, talk to them, talk to people about pornography and how it drives the sex industry. Talk to your children about pornography and how to um, you know, be aware of predators, especially in social media. And there's a lot of great resources out there. You are not alone. Culture, we are culture, so we can change culture.
1: want thank you so much. I can't say it any better than that. Um, thank you for being our guest, and we look forward to working with you more this year. We wish you guys all the best in health and safety. Thank you again.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I hope you enjoyed our sit down with Lynna Nealon. I'll tell you, I had many takeaways from this really compelling conversation, but one was when she said social media is the new track. I was personally really blown away by that. Social media is the new track. And we realize that all of our kids spend most of their time on social media. The reality that predators are are you know looking through social media to find their next victim it makes you really realize that this this is going to require all all hands on deck so parents to become aware of what's happening caretakers to become aware of what's happening for kids to become aware of what's happening but for us also to come together to hold corporations liable i've been a firm believer that these platforms actually do um, know what's taking place on their platforms, and we've seen them remove content that they deem hateful uh, or scientifically inaccurate. We've seen this all year, 2020, the year of coronavirus. They can remove content that they know is dangerous for children, and it's it's incumbent upon us to come together to ask companies to do that. Um, google amazon netflix there are many big players out there and there's ways for us as a community to come together to voice our concern we also know that paypal and marriott have actually stopped partaking in any type of activity that furthers the mission of exploitation of children or human trafficking or the exploitation of women Um, the buyer what is our response to the buyer and the level of trouble they get in do you know that all of us have a voice we can get involved in local politics we can write letters to local elected officials we can demand changes in local laws that will affect the outcomes when buyers are arrested uh, those who prostitute children women men uh, prostitute others are arrested um, when the pimps are arrested we Each can play a role in that area. So we encourage you to do just that. Share this, listen to it. Let us know questions you have. Let us know other parts of the conversation you're curious to learn more about and we'll get to work on this end. We thank you so much for tuning into The Balanced Voice. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. If you missed anything from the show, check out the show notes at thebalancedvoicepodcast.com. This episode was edited and mixed by the team at Real News PR. Our executive producer is Sydney Ziker. Our advising producer is Katie Myers. Our media and quality assurance director is Tanya Cruz. And finally, our creative design director is Elizabeth McChesney. To find out more information about Crime Stoppers of Houston or to get involved with our prevention programming, please visit us at crime-stoppers.org. You can find us on Instagram at The Balanced Voice Podcast, and you can find me online at The Run Your Report.